in the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B as in boy, I double Z, A double R O for all everyone out there. And thank you everyone for listening in and tuning in. We're in over 71 countries right now. And so that's pretty flattering. So continue to share it. Word of mouth is the best way, but sharing it on social media and telling people to listen in is definitely working. So thank you everyone for out there for doing that. And we don't advertise or, or charge any money for our podcast. So, you know, all we ask is that you guys share it and help out the entrepreneurs that are on this show who are volunteering their time to help people out and give life's lessons. So today, which brings me to our entrepreneur today, we have Eric Valji of Flex Ice Cream from Georgia. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm great, Justin. How are you? I'm doing well. So are you actually out of the Atlanta area? We are. We're so we're Metro Atlanta, which is we're about forty minutes north of Atlanta. But if you're familiar with the Atlanta area at all, it the metro area is pretty much half the state. So we just tell everyone, yep, we're in Metro Atlanta and everyone knows kind of the range of where that is. And so let let's talk about I mean, ice cream's a complicated product. Um, you know, not everyone jumps into ice cream. It's it's quite a process, but how did you ever get into the ice cream business? I mean, what was the thought process of saying, hey, I'm going to do ice cream? Well, asking about the question of why and how and everything is, is honestly something I still wake up and ask myself some days. Um, and, and you're right to an extent that it, it's a very complicated industry. And I, I would say that I, I don't think the products are complicated. I think the the realm of distributing and the logistics and the regulatory side of things makes things a little bit more complicated. It's easy to make. People can do it at home. They make the same little kits on Amazon. It's not a complicated thing. You're just we're just trying to do it at a scale that replicates what people are doing at home. And I think like any other business, I was I was talking to my partner, Chef Bobby King, and we were trying to figure out what what was next for us, what we were going to do. And we've we've both always been drawn to food and love bringing that joy and using food to bring that joy to other people. And like every a lot of other businesses, we were sitting having a few beers saying, oh, well, how hard could that possibly be? And then we jumped in. Um, as it turns out, it's very hard, but we've we've stuck with it since then and just tried to follow the path of sticking to our morals, making products that we want to eat, making things that we're proud of, making the products I want my kids to be eating and just trying to figure out how to scale that and make that more accessible to people around and so, I mean, what kind of flavors uh, do you guys have now? And, and I mean, sort of what's the goal there? I mean, and, and are you looking for like storefronts? Or are you actually just looking for distribution? I mean, sort of how are you going about that? Sure. So we, we've got a couple of different focuses in terms of how we distribute our products and what we do with it. Um, we currently have three channels of that. Um, our, our most basic and most of our product line right now is wholesale. We, we produce it in shop and deliver. Um, we have our own distribution so we can take it to local restaurants and allow them to scoop and serve it that way. Um, the rest of what we do is retail packaging, and we distribute those in two ways, either through directly in doing pop-ups or at festivals or farmer's markets. Kind of the, you know That's where we really got our start, and we continue to do that because we love being forward-facing with everyone who enjoys our products. Um, and then our third form, which is our kind of our future and our bread and butter as we grow, is retail partners. You know, we're, we're not designed to be in major, large grocery stores. Um, biggest factor is that we don't put preservatives in our products. So we get about 
I'd say about 12 weeks of shelf life on most of our products on average. And, and that's really more of a safety thing. They, they do last longer, but they lose quality. And that's just, there's not a rotation available in common larger retail to support something like that. Products that you see on the shelf that are distributed across the nation from large companies last a lot longer. I mean, some upwards of two to three years before you have to worry about it. So, you know, they're not banging on our doors because they know logistically we're not a fit. So instead, we partner with smaller retail locations or other storefronts or other restaurants in a way that could need a dessert option and bring that in without them having to do it in-house. Um, oftentimes, that's breweries, it's coffee shops, it's small retail, it's your mom-and-pop grocery store, it's the town visitor center, little things like that where we have our freezers available for people to help themselves and then also help cross-promote with the people, our business partners that we work with. And you asked a little bit about flavors, too. I, I guess I skipped over that. We, Our approach from the start, and, and honestly where the name Flux comes from, is that our menu is always in rotation. We, we're big believers in local farmers and local producers here and build our line around that. So us being in Georgia, we have our peach line that's coming out now in the fall. We uh, Georgia grows amazing apples, so we have an apple cider sorbet. We have a cinnamon apple ice cream. We have, everything follows with the season, and that's where the name Flux comes from, that our, our menu is always in flux. Um, we also produce a number of kind of standard products, a, a coffee, our cocoa caramel is our chocolate, and a few others that we keep with it. So I would say at a given time, we're probably in production of about eight flavors, and any place you go to find us, you'll probably find at max about four flavors. And so I really like this concept. One is, is you're not letting the product sort of determine itself or sales. You're letting the seasonality and fresh produce, for example, determine what items you have based on what's available, which gives a constant rotation to your products. And obviously, if someone likes peach, they're really just going to have to wait a whole year again or whatever until that product comes out. Not a whole year, but figuratively. Mm -hmm. And... um and so I like that, and I like the whole concept. So you're literally branding freezer boxes, basically, the, the ones that we everyone grew up with in their homes, the one, the chest freezers, and yes. you're wrapping them and, and branding them, and those are the things that you're, you're putting out there for people to sort of get their ice cream from. And so how did you come up with that idea as the, the best way of doing it, or is it something that's just made sense? Uh, I, I would say it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think it was always in our gut reaction that it makes sense to make the products as available as possible. But it's also a combination of, of kind of what I grew up with and what my partner grew up with, which was we went to our families took us to dairy farms to get ice cream when we didn't go to the local grocery store. I mean, we did, but our, our, our special treat was going out to a local dairy farm. Um, my family's from the New England area and my chef's from the Virginia area. And so I, I grew up in Georgia, but we went back to visit a lot. And it was always a special trip to go up to New Hampshire out in the middle of nowhere where their, where their dairy farms are and their small family productions. And each one always had a small ice cream shop. And it, they just produce products that can't be replicated in the grocery store. And I always had that love and passion in my heart while I, you know, through my whole life. And it just clicked one day that we don't have that in the metro Atlanta area. Our, our dairy farms are pretty far away from the city center. And, and a lot of them don't are so large that they don't produce side products like that. So we were trying to figure out, one, how do we replicate a product like that? How do, how do we replicate that experience? And then how do we make that available to people here? And if, you're, if you've ever sat in traffic in Atlanta, 
you know, it can take an hour to go from Atlanta to Atlanta. And we realize that, you know, there has to be a different distribution model. And there, the grocery store is kind of the common way. But again, it doesn't facilitate the quality of products and type of products we want to do. And then the other option is you, you open an ice cream shop, which we have lots of great ones. But that's re- you're really only going to go if you're near there. And so for my, our point of view and our thought was, instead of trying to get the people to come to us, how do we spread out and be where the people are? And that's where our model of that the distribution with the freezers being everywhere came from. It allows us to, instead of investing all our money in one shop and getting all our overhead in one location and hoping people come see us, we can now use a f- small fraction of that money to put up little setups or little pop-ups or freezers all over the metro area so that we're hopefully anywhere you are in the area, you're probably only about 10 minutes from a freezer. And do you market that online and 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 tell everyone on your website where where those locations are? We will be. So that's um, all that's being rebuilt right now. Um, getting the products off the off the ground, getting things going, always working on regulatory issues, always working on safety issues has always been our priority. And coming back and marketing through that is going to be kind of the next wave of things. So we we have that kind of loosely defined, but we want to do a better job of letting people know exactly where we are and if possible, which flavors are there. A lot of times we don't have every flavor at every location and people are set on certain ones and being able to display that information in different places allows people to know where they're going to get and hopefully avoid some disappointment. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And where can people find your website and uh, your social media? Sure. So we are available at fluxicecream.com and flux is F-L-U-X. And again, like I said, that's kind of a work in progress, but most of our current information is available on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I believe they're running a few others, but those are the main ones. And we're available at flux ice cream on all those. And, and that's where our, it's, it's a lot easier to keep social media current uh, and, and kind of give the day to day. This is what we're doing. This is what we're working on, where the website will be more of the foundation of here's our product layout. Here's the flavors. Here's nutritional information. Here's our story and kind of get a starting place there. Yeah, I love that. And, and so, uh, you know, as the audience should probably know, I, I do my research before someone gets on the podcast and I look them up on social media and I, you know, look up their website and, and on a side note, Eric, you can grow quite the beard. It's pretty impressive how thick (laughs) the beard is. So, and, and on this show, we've had companies like bearded man coffee and, and various other beard happy individuals. And I have a beard myself. So it's always like one of those things. I'm like, yes, another bearded individual. So it's pretty cool. And, um, just as a side note, to my question, I mean, distribution, you talked a little bit about it going Atlanta. Atlanta takes about an hour. So you're distributing a frozen product and you're obviously trying to fill like par levels. Everything has to go to a certain amount in the boxes all over the place. I mean, so how are you tackling that distribution for the ice cream? Uh, well, one, thank you for the compliment on the beard. I, I absolutely appreciate that. And, and we need to take care of each other and promote each other. And I love that. Um, with distribution, it, it's difficult. Uh, we, it, Atlanta's hot. Ice cream is cold. And with our ice cream, because I, I mentioned we don't have preservatives in them, we also don't have emulsifiers. We don't use gums. We don't use artificial flavors or any, anything else to help the product set up either. And so we're a little bit more temperature sensitive than most. We, we do melt probably about 10% faster than a common product. Um, and also, if it gets too cold, it becomes rock hard. 
And, you know, one of the things you can, people don't expect from us, when you pull something out of the grocery store, if it's 10 degrees or it's negative 40 degrees, it's always perfect and scoopable and everything is great. That's not the reality and the principle, the characteristics of milk and cream. It's, it's a liquid. It freezes. It's all the gums and chemicals that help it set up that keep it always that perfect presentation. You know, we, we chose to do things the hard way and don't have the luxury of that. So we, when we're working with distribution and logistics, we have a lot more to take into effect because if, if something melts, it's trash. It doesn't come back. Um, I, I say the biggest thing that helped us so far was we committed from an early day to use electricity versus trying to use ice or dry ice. And I think that has helped a lot. We have either our, our trucks are, are wired with freezers in them and we have freezers and, and cooler trucks. We also can run generators when we're moving. Um, that way we can always maintain that temperature and not have to worry about the added step of do we have dry ice? Do we have enough? What's the temperature look like? What's our timeline? Or trying to do it with just standard ice is a nightmare. And I really want to I want to touch on that a little bit just because the thing about dry ice and ice is a lot of people ship stuff that way but it does dry ice can overfreeze a product I, I know people don't think it's possible but it is possible and it's something that we sort of see in food time and time again especially frozen fruit it can like i mean and trying to thaw something that's been uh dry iced is like the total nightmare and so i like that you're doing it that way and i think it's important because in the food and beverage world, I think it's so important that ice obviously can help keep things cooler for a long period of time. People put it in their coolers and everything. But having a consistent temperature like you're talking about in delivery is important. And I remember Coors, uh, the beer company, they always talked about having their trucks refrigerated. And at the time, most beer companies were sending it at whatever ambient temperature it was. But the reality is a temperature fluctuation in any food does change the product. And so having delivery trucks, like you said, that keep a consistent temperature is so important to the quality of the product. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head with that, that it's the quality of what we do is start to finish every aspect. Any hand that touches this matters because it's we're, we're going out of our way to source the best local seasonal ingredients. We're making sure we're using the best packaging we can. We're creating these recipes and time testing them over and over and over again. And just to throw it out on a truck and hope it gets there, you know, kind of defeats the purpose because we don't, we don't know what's going to happen when it gets to the end user. And all they are going to know is that end user experience. So absolutely. And, it, and it's an investment and it, it's easy to say, we're just going to use ice and it's a great place to start and it's a lot less overhead, but I think that was one of the things we definitely got right was committing to consistency of electricity and consistency of a thermostat and being able to control the exact temperatures of what we're doing. Because like you said, a, a little bit of melting and the product's not as good as it would be, or we're going to a pop-up and we have dry ice on it and we open it up and it's going to be 20 minutes before anybody can even eat any of it. You know, all these things factor into the experience people have with us. And so all of that factors in and it, it, it's a, been a really good investment on our part. So, I mean, Eric, tell me a little bit about your background before this, because I, I want to lead more into this and, and what you're doing. But I mean, I mean, college life before, I mean, how did you, is this all stuff you've sort of gained knowledge in just through going through it as an entrepreneur? Or is it something that you've always had interest in? I mean, sort of what led you down this road? Oh, that is a that is a good and very loaded question. Um, I, I I've always had an interest in food, but this has not been my life 
by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, I did grow up in a household that was very adventurous. You know, we weren't that family that only ate chicken and potatoes every day. And I'm really grateful for that because we got to eat all types of food from all over the world. And my favorite thing as a kid was going with my dad to a market where nobody spoke English and I didn't know what anything on the shelf was. But we got to try some stuff and learn new things. And, and I, I try to example, accept that example for my kids now as well. But I, I think I had a pretty normal upbringing, went to high school locally, went on to college, not really knowing what I wanted to do exactly and found my way in there. Sort of, I guess I I went to school. I, I ended up I took about seven years in college. Um, and I'm not a doctor. I just have my undergrad, but kind of went through to find myself in there, which was a tough process, but I wouldn't change that for anything. And ended up with a business degree because it was everything I wanted to do was always rounded around business. I, I knew from a very young age I wanted to run my own business. I, I knew that was something that I was driven towards and had an idea for. I just didn't know what that looked like. So I got a, a business degree and went into the uh, corporate world because that's what everyone does. And I, I worked in the insurance industry for a number of years. And I, I actually, I really liked it. I was, I was good at it. Insurance makes sense to me. It's logical. It's numbers. It's risk. It's statistics. I, I really loved it. But I, what I didn't like was working for a large corporation. And not that there was anything inherently wrong with that, but what I saw was difficult for me personally was being in an organization where something was wrong or something wasn't done to the best of its ability. And your two answers were either, well, that's just the way we do it, or sure, let's fix that. It's going to take about three years. And uh, to me, that just doesn't make sense. And it wasn't the world that I needed to be in. Um, I, I actually I probably spent a few too many years in the corporate world and, and really burned out and had to I just had to get out and get away from that as fast as possible. And what I always kept back, kept coming back to was was farmers and the local farmers. And I, I loved going to farmers markets. I loved having a garden. I loved being a part of that world. And I thought maybe that was the world for me. And so I sat down and we tried to put together a plan on what it would be like to run a small farm. It's, it's something I, I believe wholeheartedly in and, and want to support. And again, said, well, how hard can it be? And, and I know the answer to that it's extremely hard. But what we didn't want to do was put ourselves in a financial bind. And that's typically what most small farmers do. So we did a lot of research on how to avoid that and how to be in the food industry and, and avoid the issues that come with not being paid well enough, the fluctuations, everything being weather dependent, trying to figure out what do we do. And what I we came to after lots of research and podcasts and interviewing people was farming is can be successful, but there's a lot of opportunity in wholesale and not so much in going every Saturday to the farmer's market. And through process of trying to figure out how to do that, I realized that, especially in this area, there was a big disconnect, is that farmers and chefs don't talk. They're completely different people. They have different lifestyles. They have different schedules. They typically aren't friends. They, they just don't connect, but they're the link in the food world. And that was a little bit shocking to me. Um, a very long story short, we came around and we started with, uh, founded Forerunner Foods, which is a distribution company that works locally here to connect local farmers with local produce. And we've since grown that over the last few years of we do local produce, we do commodity stuff, we import international stuff, we work with specialty farmers, we do contracts, all types of stuff. But that was great for a number of years. And we were trying to, as I mentioned the story with Chef Bobby, trying to figure out what was next for us or what do we expand from that. And Flux Ice Cream evolved 100% out of what Forerunner Foods does. 
we, we have our own ability to source directly from the farmers, work directly with them, get the best milk and the best cream and the best eggs, everything fruit seasonal. And it just came together to make that into an ice cream company. And we just continue to just pursue our passion of trying to make people happy and provide products that make them happy. And for the most part, ice cream makes a lot of people happy. Yeah, and a lot of memories. It creates a lot of memories around food and things like that for people and ice cream and eating with your family members or friends and things like that. So I think it's really cool what you guys are doing. And I mean, so I mean, not every fruit and veg or fruit, I got to assume is most of the ice cream. I don't know if there's any vegetables in ice cream <laughs> now that I just said that. But I mean, not every fruit works in ice cream. I have to assume that you have to be careful which ones work better than others. Or is it sort of you can make anything work because all fruit has like sort of a sugar content in and or I mean, I don't even know. I guess I've never really thought about it. Strawberry is always a successful ice cream. But I mean, could you have a blueberry ice cream or um, I know blueberries are popular in Georgia. So, I mean, explain to me that a little bit. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, to, uh, to some extent, anything can be ice cream. And there are people all over the country, ex- chefs experimenting with things that are not your traditional. But we also we have to walk that line between what's what's interesting and what's acceptable to, to the common person. And that's something that uh, chef and I are always working at, that we're both in the food industry and we love this concept of doing a a balsamic glaze over some type of herb into something a little bit crazy. And it's usually amazing and it's usually delicious, but is anybody going to walk by and buy that? It's a little bit tough to, for the common person to take a chance on that. And it, cause it's, I can't, they'll take samples all day long, but we're not, we're not in that model. So we're, they're walking by our freezer and if they see something weird, are they willing to try it? So there, there is a little bit of give and take with that. Um, our, what I would say is we try to f- ride the line between what you would find in your common grocery store and not going as far as some of the extreme fine dining, you know, New York, L.A. type stuff. We try to sit somewhere in the middle and oh, we want our ice cream to have a story. We, we, did a, we do a strawberry ice cream, and I think that's pretty basic, but we did it in a way to honor a friend of ours as a fundraiser whose wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. So everything we do has a story and we, our coffee ice cream is another one that's, that's delicious and it's very, it sells really well, but it's because we changed the process and the way that ice cream is made. Typically coffee ice cream is made with freeze dried ice cream or some of the better shops will actually brew coffee and then steep it or put it into the cream. We skip both of those fresh grind and steep it in there like you would a tea. And so you don't get that additional water content. You don't get the crystallization that comes with that. And so you can have a coffee ice cream that still has the same texture and smoothness as a vanilla. And and those are the little things that we do to try to set ourselves apart. Um, other than that, I, we set from day one that we wanted to, we only make the ice cream that we want to eat. And I a hundred percent believe that and stand by that. One we started out that I love to tell the story of is our, our blueberry Thai basil. It's a sorbet that's a base of local blueberries. And then we make a syrup out of Thai basil and put it together into a sorbet that has a sweet, savory kind of note to it. And it's it's very unique. It's not a flavor combination you'll find in a lot of places. It, it is a little bit unapproachable by some people, but it was something the chef and I made just for us. We just loved the idea and wanted to try it, and we thought it was delicious. And it took a long time for people to come around to it, but it's not one of our top sellers. 
And it's definitely one that puts us in memory of people because it's not something you're going to find on your grocery shelf. So we, we try to just make good ice cream and some of it works and some of it doesn't. Uh, this year we did a, uh, a watermelon mint and we just couldn't get it right. It wasn't, I wasn't proud of it. So we scrapped it. That whole line's not going to market this year. And we hope to kind of figure it out again for next year. But we, I want to be proud of what's on the shelf and I want to like, and I want to eat what's on the shelf. So our, our process is really a balance of all of those things, but most importantly, we just want it to be good and we want to be proud of it. And so, I mean, this is incredible because, and, and literally I just had this conversation probably a week ago about ice cream flavors and, and people always love the traditional Rocky roads and the, the cookies and cream and the, you know, mint chip, chocolate chip or whatever it's called. And mm-hmm. then you're obviously your traditional chocolate, strawberry, vanilla, vanilla with strawberries in it, et cetera. And there seems to be like, you know, in, aside from the things that companies like Ben and Jerry's do, which is a whole plethora of things, or cookie dough ice cream, what, it, what has happened is, you know, people have their staples and those are the ones they like, but we're seeing people get more intrigued in the new stuff that's coming out in ice cream and while all those are there and people still eat them and they're still their comfort things you know people are starting to experiment in in the the protein ice creams and in the the fresher ice creams and the ice creams that are more made traditionally to what they grew up at their grandparents house on their farm growing up you know and it's one of the things i looked forward to growing up as a kid which is you know, every summer when our family members would come down or my cousins would come stay with us on our farm, we'd make ice cream from scratch, for lack of a better term, and sort of in the old traditional thing that spun with the ice cubes and all that. And there was just a difference in the quality of it just because we were doing it at home and we knew the ingredients that were in there. And again, nothing artificial was really going in there. It was all fresh produce and fresh milk and fresh cream and et cetera, et cetera, all from the local area. So, I mean, it's kind of an incredible thing and it's basically what you guys are capturing all in your ice cream. Yeah, we're, we're certainly trying and, and you're right about the shift in, in public opinion with certain things, but I, I think it's probably a little bit slower than you and I see on a day to day because we are in this world. There are, I think there's still, especially in this area, there's a lot of people who, you know, I eat Rocky Road and that's what I want. So make me Rocky Road. And we have to say, well, you know, that's that's not really what we do. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of great people who make Rocky Road. Like if you want to eat that, that's fine. You're not going to hurt our feelings, but we're trying to do something a little bit different. And and that experience that you described about having your family together and making ice cream from scratch in your kitchen and the memories that come with that is is what this company is driven on. Those are both memories that, that we have and try to replicate that and say, OK, well, it's not feasible for everyone to make ice cream at home, but how close can we get them? And can we share that experience with them? And it does make better ice cream. The, the process you described is, is extremely similar to what we do. We just do it on a larger scale and have, a, have machines that help us do some of that. But a lot of it we do by hand. We, we mix by hand. We cook you know, in small batches. We cup by hand. We, everything is done sort of along the way you, you, that you described, but in a bit of an assembly line. And because we, we don't want to lose that at home presence, that at home atmosphere and experience. It's about m- replicating that and scaling it, not trying to find a way to make it more efficient. And so we, we do that and, and we find people come around to some, some people come around to the flavors. Um, a lot of it, we've kind of taken it as our own mission to 
help expose people to new things and let them know there is other stuff out there. And we, like you said, the blueberry basil is a great one where people would not touch that on the shelf. But when they come by and they sample it and we start talking about it and word of mouth spreads, it's now one of our top sellers. So there, it, it's an evolving demographic, but it's, it's still slow. And a lot of the pushback we get is because people are just used to, for however many hundreds of years, of getting ice cream from the grocery store. You know, you, you mentioned mint chip is a really common one. Well, mint chip's not supposed to be green. There's so yeah. little mint compared to the cream and eggs that's in that. It shouldn't be green. It's just all the other stuff that goes in it. Um, our strawberry that we mentioned was one that we often get a little pushback from because it's not bright red. It's a little bit of a pink tint, but you're, it's 90% cream and milk and ice cream base and 10% fresh strawberries. It tastes like strawberry ice cream. It, it, you can see the pieces in it, but it's not what you would expect off the grocery store shelf. And so people are, some people who are new to us as a brand are a little hesitant. And, and we uh, say this all the time to everyone, and we train our staff to tell us, I don't have a sales pitch. I don't have anything to convince you on. Just try it. 90% of people, that'll work. And if it's not for you, that's fine. But we're just here for really good tasting ice cream. We're not here for gimmicks and fancy colors or fancy effects or anything like that. We just make good local ice cream. Well, I love that you say that. And it's, it's kind of funny because – blueberries are is an example i love because blueberries are blue purplish but when you actually mix them or break them down or juice them or whatever they actually turn out purple and so yes. when you're trying to sell a blueberry thing and some of the things that we've seen with some of the people we do co-packaging for is that uh the the blueberry is actually purple it's not a purple berry drink it's a blueberry drink or smoothie or whatever it is and you're like uh well i if you want it natural it's going to come out purple i know you're calling it blueberry but you know it's certain things that just happen and it's the same with the strawberries the strawberries are red on the outside but anything you actually do with the strawberry turns out pink yes, and so exactly. it's it's just one of those things that um that it just happens even watermelon while the flesh is a reddish color and everyone associates watermelon has to be a dark red and it's mm -hmm. like wait you know that's from years of people putting food coloring things or in candy or or cartoons that made the part of the watermelon so red with a really green rind and if, right. if you really look at a watermelon it's not that color and so no it's not and it's an interesting thing. So it's one of those things where you, it, it's starting to change mindsets with people and, and getting used to things in the in their raw form. And I remember a few years ago, I watched a Jamie Oliver thing on TV. And like, you know, the, the kids were young, but they had no idea that a chicken McNugget actually came from a chicken and, and <laughs> couldn't figure out how it was or or how corn actually was on a cob. And it was this whole thing where we've become so attached to the grocery stores and I'm, and I like that they're expanding their fresh produce. Don't get me wrong, but it's sort of, we've become so used to packaging and industrialized food and especially in the United States that we didn't even, we didn't even know what stuff looked like anymore. You know, we just had no clue that, you know, blueberry juice actually came from this little berry that grows on a vine that, that, you know, and it's sort of this whole detachment from farming. So I love that you're sort of bringing that back. And it's in a, in a way it's about the ice cream, but in another way, it's also educational. And it, it is, it is. And it's absolutely, there's a lot of education to be done because 
I know, I mean, we didn't grow up with that. We, I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't see all these things. I know the, the first time I showed my wife how, what Brussels sprouts looks like on the plant, it like blew her mind. And, th- and those are things you don't see because our only interaction with food is in the grocery store. And I think it's great. There's a lot of outlets, a lot of great podcasts like yours and a lot of other places to educate yourself on food. But that's one person at a time. And I, I think personally, I think a lot of the responsibility rests on the producers like us uh, saying, yes, people expect the blueberry ice cream to or blueberry sorbet to be blue, but it's really purple. So let's not cut that corner. Let's just educate people versus trying to sell a little bit more product up front and giving them what they expect. Uh, There's a lot of education that goes into what we do, and we train our staff to educate consumers. But I I think the responsibility rests on us and other manufacturers. And I think part of what we're seeing in food, and and I love what you guys are doing about this too, is is the educational process. It's almost like we're coming back full circle. And I've heard we're like, I think it's the sixth food evolution or revolution or whatever the terms are out there by um, by professors, et cetera. But we're sort of going four circle. Food's getting local. We're trying to get it more from the farms. We're, we're cutting back on the preservatives and the things that are going to food and going back to the basics and figuring out better ways to bring those to the consumers. But part of that whole thing is the whole education that has to happen behind it. And, and you know, and, Literally, I mean, as a for-profit business, I'm doing a lot of for-profit. Obviously, at the end of the day, I want to make money and and all of that. But on the other side of it, there's this thing that is really fulfilling and rewarding is that the education of people on food and, and the education of where the food comes from and the education of what sustainability really looks like. And it's not just a a marketing word or what organic really means or how it takes place. You know, a lot of people just think, Oh, you know, why doesn't everyone switch to organics? Well, there's a three year process to switch the soil over and do all these things and to get to that point and the cost behind it. So you know, it's not that easy. And then as consumers, it's great to say that we want to be sustainable and have organics and things like that. But if we're not buying it every day and practicing with our wallet, it, it's just a theory. And it's the same with your ice cream. If you want things to get better and things to get better for the generations that come, when it comes to food, you've got to exercise the option through the thing that matters, which is how you purchase when you're at the store or go find a Flux ice cream and buy it because they're using all these things and not using preservatives and bringing back food right from the farm to the consumer. And I think it's just really cool that you guys are doing that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and it's something that we we've always wanted to stand behind and, and, and you're right, we're going through a big evolution in what we're doing. And, and I think the fact that people now care more about what the food label says is really important. And I, it's great that people are reading labels and considering what, going into their body and where it's coming from and all that is hugely important for the sustainability of people in the future and but i I don't think the idea of being educational and standing for your morals and doing the right sustainable thing and profitability are mutually exclusive we if we wanted to make ice cream like everyone else we would be in a big jumble of piles of here's you know go to the grocery store there's 10 12 different brands 50 different, 60 different flavors of something that I need someone to pick mine out of that bunch. I I really don't want to play that game. You know, there's a plenty of demographic and plenty of growth and people who care about quality and premium products and wanting to know what's in it. And most importantly, knowing what's not in it. 
And that allows us to distinguish what we do. So we're, we're able to educate people. We're able to stand behind our beliefs and in, in our growth and in the way we grow, but we're also profitable. And, and that's where the, you know, the investor world may see our margins are not high enough and we may not get an angel investor or a VC to come in and grow this company. Yeah. There are easier and cheaper ways to make ice cream that, you know, that's very evident, but we are, we're growing sustainably ourselves and we're growing profitably and the market is continuing to shift our direction and away from buying some commodity item out of the grocery store. And, and with the, the label is it's just hugely important to us. One of the two things that we set out with our principles for this company were every, you know, five years down the road, I, I want to be proud of the products we're still making. You know, I think it's easy to take on investors and cut corners and have to cut back to be able to do all the things you need to do. And we're actively fighting that as best we can. And two, when you pick up our ice cream, I want you to read the label and know what all the words mean. And that's really hard to find these days. And, and so far, we've been able to do that. Ice cream should be cream, milk, sugar, egg yolks. For ours, is custard-based. Most of ours are custard-based. It's whatever our flavors. There's some vanilla extract that we make ourselves and a little bit of salt. And that's it. Um, our only additive in our sorbets are pectin that we add in, which is just a byproduct of whichever fruit we're using. And you know, I, you need to be able to read the labels and know what all the words mean and be able to recognize them and your kids should be able to recognize them. And unfortunately, I think we're still in, from the grocery store sense going in the opposite direction. You know, there are a lot of companies now getting into dairy free and, and I think that's great. And there's a huge growing demographic for that. And the problem is they're trying to replicate something that can't be done without a little extra science. And yeah. there are new dairy free co- flavors from companies producing that are, here's your dairy free vanilla and it, it tastes good. and It's got a good texture. And you flip it over and it's got 19 ingredients. And I do this for a living and I don't know what all those words are. Okay. And, and that's what worries me. And so we try to look at it from a, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm looking, I want to dumb it down and say, if somebody wants dairy free, how do you do that? And our answer to that for now, at least was sorbets. And, and even those were not because we were trying to appease the dairy free market or the vegan community or anything like that. It's just, when you have fresh local peaches or you have local blueberries, you want to get the best flavor out of that and the best quality of that. You don't mask it with dairy. That's We did it just to make the best tasting product. It happens to be dairy-free. It happens to be vegetarian. And we, of course, market that. Everything so far has been, up until our last release, has been gluten-free. You know, We didn't do that just to be able to market to those people. We did it because we didn't want all the gluten-filled filler into our product. And it just happens to be that. So I, I think there's an approach that companies need to take and not just us to say, we care what that label says. We want it to not be 50 ingredients. We, we want to make the best product that makes sense and not just overly use science to get around some different regulations. Well, and it's interesting because I've been, you know, food service partners and my family's been in food for way longer than that. But 20 years and people were saying, oh, you know, healthcare and you do health meals and fitness meals and you have all this experience in the healthy food side. And don't get me wrong, we do co-packaging and stuff outside of that. We don't use artificial ingredients and stuff in, in our food. And just because we're like, we have other clients here who don't want it in their food and, and we believe in not putting it in. So we try to figure out ways to keep food fresh in other ways with fresh ingredients. It's one of our main focuses. But, mm-hmm. um, but one of the things is, 
is when people ask that question and they're like, how do I get started and what's the best way to eat? And the answer is always right now, read the label on the back of the thing. And if you can't pronounce the word or you feel you need a PhD in science to understand what's in your food, that's probably not something you should be eating. You know, and the second part is, is whole foods. If it reads on the label and it's a whole product going in there, you know, like you said, milk, you know, sugar, strawberries, eggs, like, okay, that's all this. When it starts getting broken down or there's coloring in it and and things like that, you're not really knowing. And that doesn't mean I don't every once in a while eat those things as, you know, I don't always practice what I preach. But if I were to overall change the way that I eat to be a healthier person, the first and easiest thing to do is just read the labels of the food that, that you're eating to your point, because there's just so much crap people put in food and it's not to make food taste better. That's what the people, it's not anything. And it's usually and sometimes it's quality, but most of the time it's to extend the amount of shelf life that it's able to be on a grocery store shelf so they can maximize the, the profitability by not having that item go bad. And so you're just naturally extending something for the sake of not making it taste better, not making it um, be better for you, but simply to extend the shelf life of that product. Oh, absolutely. And you, I mean, you hit it right on the head there that we could make ice cream with skim milk and add back whey proteins and add some other binder and something to set it up. And yes, it would probably be 10 cents cheaper but it's just not the way that we want to do things. It's not the product I want to eat. And especially it's not what I want my kids to eat. And and that's what we're looking forward to. And as you know, raising kids and changing the world and letting people grow and not putting crap into their body. And, and I don't think, I don't think it's an overly complicated thing. I, I, the complication comes from the marketing that is thrown in our face all the time, but it's, it's easy to tell what works and what doesn't. Uh, one of the things that I, we hear from people all the time and I've experienced myself is you can eat. We, we've all had that moment where you eat a little bit too much ice cream. It's just good, and you don't stop yourself. And, and I think we all deserve those moments every once in a while. But when you eat flux ice cream with the pure ingredients or any product with the pure ingredients, you can tell. Oh, I ate too much. But I, you don't feel like garbage like you do when you eat oh, eat too much of a processed product. And so your body doesn't lie to you. Your body's telling you, yeah, something's in here is not right. And and that's something we get the question all the time. Well, what makes your product healthy? And, and that's kind of a, a tough question to answer because we're ice cream. You know, we're not designed to be healthy, but it depends on how you look at it. If you have diabetes or you shouldn't be eating these things anyway, then no, don't eat our product either. It's not going to change anything. You shouldn't. Some people shouldn't be eating these types of foods. But what it does change is instead of going to the diet ice cream or the low-cal this or artificial sugar that – you know, just eat less of ours. And I, and that's at least has been my approach. And I feel better because when I, I've had every, almost everything on the market and usually the diet stuff doesn't taste good. And I just, you know, yeah, it's less calories, but it wasn't worth the calories anyway. And so everything, like you say, everything is moderation and everything is, is important to factor in. But our belief has always been you stick with pure ingredients, eat less if you need to, but not going the route of maximizing shelf life and trying to create a diet product. Yeah. And I think that's exactly it, isn't it? And having whole ingredients, like you said, that you can actually read on the label and, you know, knowing that where your vanilla comes from and that you're extracting it yourself. I mean, I think those are all key things, you know, to 
eating, you know, just, it doesn't necessarily need to be healthy. I, you know, I use that word loosely. It just Mm -hmm. needs to be what's best for the human body. And we, you know, we are animals and, you know, when we start processing things galore, or like you said, adding in stuff, we were just never meant to eat that way. It wasn't the way we're designed as human beings. We were, we're designed to eat whole foods and, and things like that. So what you're doing basically with ice cream, yes, if you're going to eat ice cream, which is awesome, you should just look at what you're eating. And, and you guys are sort of solving that problem, which is how do I still have what I want, the ice cream, but eat it and I, I hate to use the word healthier, but it's in a way that's better for me. And mm-hmm. so, yes, does it have calories? Absolutely. And and that's up to the moderation, like you said. But but if I'm going to eat it, I'm going to take the calories. I might as well eat this stuff. And it's, you're right. It doesn't make you feel like crap. And I know it from my own experience because I used to travel all the time and eat whatever was on the road. And, you know, in my own experience, I watch what I eat and, and want wholer foods, even when I'm out and traveling. And I'm very particular now. You know, some might say I'm picky. But it's more <laughs> so because if I'm going to put in a 14 to 16-hour day while I'm on the road because I'm away from my family and Deborah and I are, are trying to hit the ground running, you know, and I want to make time for my family at home, I am need to put in 16 hours when I'm not home so I have the free time to do the things I need to while I am home. And that means eating properly and I need to have the energy. And like you said, if I feel like crap, I don't feel like working. And so it means eating properly. And it was a simple switch, you know, you know, even to what you're saying, if I'm going to eat ice cream, I want, it's not about the diet one or less calories or whatever. It's actually that I can read the label, you know, for me. And that's how I pick a lot of products that I buy now, you know, and, and things like that. And I try to go fresh as much as I can, but it's not always that simple. So, um, Eric, I'm going to switch the topics a little bit here. And okay. um, so let's talk about just being an entrepreneur. I mean, let's talk about if you had like three things that you could recommend to any entrepreneur out there or any person getting into the food or beverage business. I mean, what would those three things be? Sure. I, I would say, and this probably applies to all industries and all entrepreneurs, um, I, the most important one, and I, I tell this to a lot of people who ask me all the time, um, I think it was, um, Mark Cuban, I think it was his quote and said something along the lines of don't start a business unless you don't have any other options and you can't, uh, you can't not do it. And I, I kind of, th- you know, when I got into this world and I started my, my first business, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, I get that. That's cool. And it took years and years and having a wife that's at home by herself with kids and understanding that this is not for the weak of heart. It is a tough life and it is extremely difficult and it's financially taxing. It's mentally taxing. It's tough on relationships. It's tough on everything. And yeah, I I would say I don't, I don't recommend you become an entrepreneur unless you can really stomach that and your, your lifestyle can afford that because it's not easy and it, it's not as glamorous as what Instagram makes it out to be these days. And that's to me, one of the biggest problems is that, entrepreneurship now is so glamorized and that is you get to quit your job and travel the world and do all these things. And that's not the world. The world is I'm up at 4 a.m. I'm at work at 4:15. I'm back at home at nine to take my son to preschool. And then I'm back again. And then I'm working all day running around trying to track all these things, both taking care of my family and making sure that my employees' families are taken care of. Cause that's now my responsibility too. 
And that goes all day, eating as well as I can, when I can, exercising if I can, and then back home to have dinner with my family, make sure everyone's taken care of, and a lot of nights it's back to work again. It's it's not glamorous. It's hard. And and my, my first thing I absolutely would say, make sure you can really, really commit to that. Um, the second thing I would say is pad yourself and your numbers, your expectations, your timelines, a, a huge margin of error. The, you know, we set out with this saying that we were going to be making X number of dollars in six months. So that meant in eight months we could do this and in 10 months we could do that. And we were way off. We're, we're still trying to work our way towards goals and it's constantly evolving, but just things happen. There's expenses that you don't know about and there's time crunches that don't happen. And there's the market changes while you're trying to do your things and your competitors change. Everything is moving. And so building in a little bit of margin when you're you're looking at, okay, do I want to quit my, my day at nine to five and go do my own thing? You know, it's, it, there's a, give yourself a big margin of error because things will go not necessarily wrong, but they'll go different. And you want to be able to survive that and, and not make something as small as, you know, I had six months worth of money, but I needed seven to be the reason that you, your company didn't make it. And I would say that the third thing is along those lines and would say that you don't, do things that make sense. Trust your gut and grow a business in a way that makes sense. If, you know, for us, it was, hey, I know this experience of what ice cream can be and I know how good it can be. And most people don't. And I think it's profitable to bring pe- bring that experience to people. And I, every, everybody thought we were crazy. I'm sure they still do because there are cheaper and easier ways. There are mass production ways. We're competing against giant, giant companies. It doesn't make sense, but we've trusted our gut knowing that this is the way to do it. This is what we believe in. And and then we stayed within that. We There are the, the old saying of like, this is just the way you do it doesn't apply. There are new ways to do anything. And there are things you don't need to buy. We've bootstrapped our way from day one with $10 in our pocket trying to figure out how we're going to launch this. And and I wholeheartedly believe in bootstrapping yourself and cutting corners in the sense of not overspending and and growing within your means and not sacrificing the quality and end result and the user experience that your customers have. So for us, that was our, our kitchen is 144 square feet and, and that's it. It's tiny and skinny guys don't make great ice cream. So it gets tight in there. And we started, you know, we, we share a space with my, with my other company because we needed, we needed to save the money. And we, you know, we started with a packaging that was a little bit easier for us to manage and easier for us to use and didn't require additional uh, overhead and different equipment. And we're just growing at our own pace in a way that doesn't push us beyond our means. And that look, we, you know, we're not too far from another uh, local producer that's now a nationwide brand and they have 70,000 square feet just down the road from us. And it's a little intimidating. And one day, sure, we'd like to be something like that, but it doesn't happen overnight. And trying to grow your business within your means is just like living within your means and trying to find ways that make you more efficient as a business allows you to do things as a more quality end for your product. And for us, that was, it was always about that. But I can't provide a really great whole food ice cream to you if I have to cut corners because I can't make my rent or I can't afford enough employees to do this. So I've got to start using artificial vanilla. You know, we're, I'm not okay with that. So we have to take care of our foundation and take care of the way we grow our business, regardless of the industry, so that we can then provide what we want to for our customers. 
One of the things that you said that I really want to focus on is the bootstrapping it yourself because to what you just said about the vanilla um, and, and then having to get artificial one because you're tight on money versus having the employees to produce it yourself. When a lot of companies take in investors and what, sometimes what investors do is they force you to cut corners. And I didn't mean the cut corners were, we're talking about being efficient or, or as a business and doing things more effectively. I'm talking about cutting corners, like the ones that compromise your brand or your product. Mm -hmm. And, and so you know, I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the podcast, but being an entrepreneur, you, you're going to have the grind and it's going to be years. And, and so, like you said, padding the numbers is important because being an entrepreneur isn't a six, you know, six month to one year game. Like it's years before products really start to take off or, or businesses start to take off. And even that, even if you have an upward scale, it is a long time before all the pieces come together where it really starts jumping in success. I mean, I would say you can have a steady uphill, but if you really get a leap, it's usually after years of doing it and people don't see that. Uh, to what you said about Instagram and all that and being an entrepreneur, a lot of this stuff, people don't know the years of, of hard work or hardship people have put in or low salaries or living pennies to pennies, wanting to make sure that their employees are taken care of, but they're also taking care of their family, but not wanting to compromise their product. And being an entrepreneur is that it's hours upon hours of work. It's, um, it's managing expectations. It's making sure you take care of people. But it's also like every day you're constantly juggling decisions and things like that. And I honestly, there are nights I don't sleep very much because something's got to be decided. And, you know, how do I decide that? And, and what goes on? And how does it affect my employees? So how does it affect my customers? How does it affect my vendors? How does it affect my family? You know, and so it's like, you know, am I going to take more time away from them when I already take a lot to be an entrepreneur also? And it's really, it's... The thing, the, the, the coolest thing about it, I think, is that you learn something about yourself. For me, and if I was to say the positive upswing in, in, in hard work and things like that, and I'm not saying you shouldn't work smart, and I'm not saying the amount of time makes you successful because there is a lot of things that go into success as an entrepreneur. But what I am saying is there's a willingness to work hard and learn and be humble enough to learn from your mistakes that sort of happens amongst all of it. And then really the most important thing is, is whatever your budget is, double it and then double that because you're right, not, not products and a lot of products aren't successful and they don't always work. And then the other thing is if you go to market with only one product or two products within a category or flavors, you're going to fail because you need to have, you know, we always go through this with food or, or, or contracts. We're, we need to present eight to 12 items because if there's three or four items that don't sell well, we need to have an item that goes in. We may only go to market with six, but we have three backed up to drop the three lowest sellers to bring in three other ones. And it may hurt because I personally love one of the flavors and believe in them. But you've got to be willing to sort of navigate that way because, you know, you never know. Consumers are different than us, but you still have to stay true to yourself, like you said, within your brand. But sometimes you need to be already knowing you're going to pivot and you're going to lose money on food, uh, especially during the R&D process to what you said about the watermelon and mint. You know, and you're just like, scrap it. But you spend money on trying to develop it. 
And if you got too caught up and I spent money on it, I really just need to force this thing through so we can try to return our money. What's really ends up happening is you just perpetuate the loss. And so, um, I thank you for that, Eric. I don't, I got all over the board there, but I really liked what you said there overall. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and you, I mean, you covered a lot of really important things. I, I think there's, there's a quote that always comes to mind to me. It's, it's um, along the lines of it, it takes seven to 10 years to be an overnight success. And I, and I think it's in reference to individuals, but the same thing 100% applies to businesses. And it's hard because you get caught up in the growth that you do have. And you look at it and say, wow, we, we have 100 new followers and that's amazing. But if, if we're not selling 100,000 cups next year, we're going out of business. You know, and you've got to kind of keep it in, in perspective of that. Um, I think the most important thing is that I, I don't know the answers and I haven't figured all this out yet. We're still, we just make it up as we're going along. And that, I think that's what entrepreneurship is. Even the best of the best, they're still kind of making it up and hoping it works. And you, you have to be comfortable with that. And, uh, you touched on sleep, which is a really big one. If, if you're that kind of person who's, you know, I need seven to eight hours or I can't function don't be an entrepreneur. It's not going to work. It, there are sleepless nights because you have too much work to do. There's sleepless nights because you don't have enough work to do. There are sleepless nights because of everything in between. And, and it's tough and it's hard to, you can't keep that completely contained within yourself or within your company. As you said, it spills over into your family. It spills over into your friends, your faith life, everything. And I don't know the answer to that. We're still trying to figure that out. I, I was very blessed to have a, a beautiful wife who most days understands what I do. And, and in her defense, I, I know she's not wrong, you know, trying to, you know, trying to make sure the family's taken care of and making sure that, you know, what, what, what am I doing? Where are we going with this? And what's the end result? And, you know, as the entrepreneur life is sometimes I don't know, I have a direction and I'm going to keep going and then I'm going to pivot. And that's easy for me as a single person to say, but it's hard to tell your family. So yeah, it's, it's a tough life and it's a grind certainly. And it, and it doesn't end. It's years and years. And, and we hope to be at the place where we can be a little bit more comfortable but there's never a place where you sit back on the beach and post Instagram pictures. And, and that's that, you know, that's not the life we signed up for. Um, I think the other really important thing you touched on is, is losing control of your stuff because of investors. We being in this industry, we know lots of other people in the industry, especially, and this happens in food all the time that you either take an investor who needs to hit their returns for their portfolio, which means, okay, we're using artificial vanilla or it's, we're growing our business and we want to sell it. And so we need to pad the numbers so that whoever's looking to buy this, we get premium dollar. Both of those individuals are not out there set to make the best tasting product you can. And, and we are to an extent set to do that, but we want to, we have to be profitable. We have bills to pay. We have things to take care of. We want to get paid for the amount of work we do. So it's, it's kind of a weird balance that we have as an entrepreneur to say, yes, I understand what makes the most money, but here's what might make the most money in the long run, or here's what personally satisfies me and follows our morals. And you're constantly dragging back and forth between those two things because there's, there's never enough money and there's never enough time. And that's just the life we signed up for. Yeah, and that's uh, 100% spot on. I, I, I think you said it perfectly. I think that, you know, being a lot of people, when you take on investors, if you're not doing it for you anymore as much. You start losing focus on, I'm doing it for someone else to hit their numbers and they put the money in and they're not here day in and day out. So they don't really understand what goes on. And there's this whole thing where 
you know, just take the time to build the businesses yourself, I think is the, the role of anyone listening in. I think it's so important. And I think to what you've done is you've, you know, you, you successfully got one business off the ground and that was your main focus. You sort of prioritized and executed. And then once that was going well, you got into the ice cream. And I think that that's important as well as a lot of entrepreneurs try to jump things rapidly or, or take on a lot or have these big ideas that I'm going to have like eight companies and it's going to start right away. And it's just not what happens. Like you, if you don't fix and perfect one, and I use the word perfection loosely because um, I'll get to in a second, but you can't mm-hmm. jump into the next thing. The other part is, is I've seen it a lot and I know from my own experience what not to do is that when you think you made it, you still haven't made it. There's still a lot of pivoting to do. And even if it's your seventh or eighth business under an umbrella or whatever it is that you're doing, you still have to run the businesses. Cause the minute you start to take your eyes off of one business, that business starts to, to flounder because every business as an entrepreneur, you need to be able to handle multiples if that's what you're going to do. And it's what you're doing, Eric. And, but you still need to have your finger on the pulse always of all those businesses and be pivoting all of them. It means you need to have really good people in place to support you in those businesses so you can grow, but that requires training people and spending time with them and those people having the right attitude and making sure you're always training the next successor in line to, to the growth. Because if you really want to grow, you're constantly growing positions as an organization and you need to grow people in order to do that. But my point being is that really, like, it's never over to what you said. It's never over as an entrepreneur. No matter what, there's no days that you're, like, on the beach, relax. I don't have shit going on in my mind. Like, that has never happened. I may go on vacation. My phone and my email and my mind is still going 100 miles an hour. And while, you know... I, when I'm with my family, I try to prioritize them and be present with them to the best of my ability and not present anything else. That doesn't mean emergencies don't happen, but it's the same with business. When I'm there, I'm there and I'm concentrating on that and I'm doing as much as I can on that. So when I'm with my family, I can focus on them as much as possible, but, but just because I am doesn't mean it ends there. Or if I'm focusing on one thing, it is a constant 24 hour thing going on and worry. And, Oh, I forgot to send an email. You know, next thing you know, I'm up at three 30 in the morning at my computer sending an email. I forgot to send the day before because that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Cause I can't wait for it to be tomorrow because tomorrow I already have all these other things going on. So it's yeah, just it, one it, of those things. It doesn't end. And, and truth be told, I, I don't know if deep down I want it to end. I mean, I, I love what I do and I love the lifestyle. It's, it's hard and I, 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 I hope for more stability each week than I had the week before. But, you know, you, you do this as an entrepreneur because you love it and because you can make a difference bigger than yourself. And, and that's hard to explain to people who don't get it sometimes. But I, I appreciate all the nice things you said. I, I think you've probably given me some very undue praise and that it, it is hard juggling things and I haven't figured it out. And when I'm focusing on one business or one aspect of the business, the other side suffer and I'm trying, and you're still trying to figure out how do you prevent that from happening? Um, you know, you, you mentioned, I think the biggest thing is that you got to find good people and you got to take care of those people because it's hard enough for a large corporation to have turnover and, and retrain people. McDonald's is built around it. Well, I, I can't do that. I can't retrain people. I can't lose my top manager and retrain them. There's nobody. 
you know, we're just a few people in a small warehouse trying to run a few businesses and help people out where we can, but it, you're right. It doesn't end. And, and I think maybe you've done it a little bit better than I have that when I'm at work, I'm worrying about my family. And when I'm at home, I'm worrying about work. It's, it's hard. Your brain doesn't turn off. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a constant thing. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. It took me years to actually even get that message, let alone practice it. So, um, but one of the other things that I think is just so important is, you know, how do you do all of it? And, you know, where does it all come from? And the thing that I love about being an entrepreneur, like people are going to think I'm some masochist or something, but <laughs> it's kind of crazy what happens um, as an entrepreneur is, you know, you actually thrive the most when things aren't going well in the pivoting and in the uncomfortable situations because, well, one, the success comes from because you do uncomfortable better than anyone else does because most people go comfortable. That's why they're not entrepreneurs. If you like comfort in your life and you like, you know, things being constant and comfortability, an entrepreneur is not for you. But you get into this thing where, you know, I call it a little bit of the suck is when things get crazy or or a lot's going on, or, or we have to deal with a problem that, you know, being able to thrive in that area, it's not what I want, but, you know, being able to thrive in that is important. Actually, it's a conversation that the people we work with or the people that work for us, like we're starting to really, over the last few months, start really talking about, even as employees, like this is the what it is. Like this is like mm -hmm. the stories that you tell. When things are bad, when things are good, no one tells a story. You know, this is what makes us and this is what differentiates us from our competitors is how well do we handle these situations? Because no matter what, you can't plan for everything. So how mm -hmm. do we handle this? And how do you as an individual take pride in handling those things? When you look in the mirror and you're like, at the end of the day, are you like, damn, I did that. I handled that situation. It sucked, but I got through it. And there's this weird thing that happens when you constantly do that, that you have more confidence in yourself, which attracts more people to you and business to you and, and all of that as an entrepreneur um, and things like that. But there's also this thing that you get fulfillment out of life, you know, and, oh, absolutely. and it's crazy and it's if and it's hard and it took a long time to get there. And I wish someone would have told me these things. I didn't have to learn them so much on my own. But it's really cool what happens. Um, and it's really, I can usually tell, like, one, if someone comes to me and they want to be an entrepreneur and they start talking to me. I mean, it's, it's that grit and, and willing to go through it and learn from your own mistakes is a big part of it. But the mm -hmm. other part of it is, is entrepreneurs that are going to be successful, there's this sort of, I don't know. I can tell there's just, just, like you said, it didn't matter that you went through seven years of school or it didn't matter that you got out in the world. You just didn't like it. There was this, there's this thing inside you. It's almost like rebellious, but it's like, I'm going to go do this no matter what. And, and to your Mark Cuban quote, if I had something else I could do or wanted to do, then I would go do that. But it's there's nothing else I want to do than go through this. And it's almost like I'm willing to go through the pain and I'm willing to go through the suffering to get what I want. And so... Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think you one of the big things is you mentioned hopefully not being a masochist, but I, I think all or most good entrepreneurs are. 
And unfortunately, that's just that's what makes good entrepreneurs is people who can seek out the hard times and tackle it head on. And that that's what this life is. And and it, it's a conditioning thing. It's it's no different than going to the gym and you can bench press and you do it over and over. And now you can bench press more. Yeah. Well, the same thing happens with the ability to handle difficult tasks. You know, we'll you know, we get a night out every once in a while. And, you know, if the babysitter bails on us 30 minutes before about to leave, you know, my wife might be freaking out. But, you know, this is just another thing to fix. And to me, it's no problem because this is nowhere near compared to when we had four, you know, our first year we had four events going on and only two freezers and two staff members. And how do we be in four places at once? Like, I've done this before. I can figure this out. And I, I do enjoy it. And I enjoy going to bed after a really, really tough day. It feels good because I, I know I'm not the best entrepreneur and I know I'm not the best chef and I'm not the best anything, but I know I can handle these situations better than most. And that's where, where my satisfaction comes from. And it's, it's hard for people who aren't like us. It's very hard to explain. It's very hard to, for people to think we're normal people. Cause I, I guess we're not. And, and that's just, that's the life and that's the life you're describing. And, and that's where we say, you know, you do it because you have to, and because you can't be happy doing anything else and not because you wish anything else upon you. And, and I'm sure you've got the same way in your, your early startup days. You've got stories of how ridiculous things got and how terrible and how you knew you were going to fail, but here you are and you're still here and you're still kicking and you're stronger because of it. That's what this is all about. Well, and I got to be honest, every time we open a new location, it, it, it is like starting all over again. You have new employees, mm -hmm. you have new facility, you have new things that go wrong, new equipment. I mean, literally, it's, it's, it's a way of humbling me every time we do it because, like, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where it's never the same. It's never easy. No matter how many times you've gone through it, there's new things to learn and the willingness to learn it. And I... I agree with you. It's just never over. And, you know, and it's really mental toughness. And I don't mean mental toughness and being stubborn, you know, because a lot of people, I've said that before, and they're like, oh, I just need to be a hard ass, and I need to rule with an iron fist, and, and that's my mental toughness, and no one will ever get me to change my mind. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that no matter what's going on, that I have the mental toughness to say, I need to pivot and I need to be, have the mental toughness to put my ego away. That's the mental toughness because that's if your, your ego's in the way, like that's disaster. Absolutely. And that happens all the time. And uh, your, your ego will be put into check very quickly and your, you will be humbled every day. That's small business and, and learning how to juggle that. And, you know, my, my my wife talks to me off a mental edge every once in a while, perhaps pretty common these days, and saying, look, you've made it through before. You, you know, you're not you haven't failed yet. Why are you acting mentally like you're a failure? And you're like, you're, she's right. And she, sometimes you just need to hear that from an outside source. That I, I've done this. We've survived. We're still here. Whatever the problem is, we'll make it through it. And we're on to the next one. And right after that, you're going to have another problem. And that's just what this is. You're when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a firefighter. I really loved that, just the idea of what they do, and I have so much respect for those guys. And and honestly, that's what I do now. I run around all day putting out fires. Just they're a little, they look a little bit different. And that's that's what this life is. That's what you sign up for, and your ego will be put in check by you or by someone else. It's going to happen, and you will be humbled, and everything will come together, and you'll survive, or you'll fail and you'll start again, but you'll still be going. 
And and that's that you're 100% right. That mental toughness is that you're just not breakable because this type of work will try very, very hard to break you. Yeah, and it's interesting that you said the failure thing because I can relate to that a lot. No matter how well I'm doing, I still have this fear of failure and and I still have this thing that I'm failing at times. And it's almost that's another like almost prerequisite to being a successful entrepreneur over time is that no matter how well you're doing, you feel that you could be doing better. And while people may be like, oh, then you're never satisfied. I don't think I, like I said, the fulfillment's different than a satisfying. And I don't really look at life as trying to find satisfying things or find comfort. I look at it as more of being fulfilled, but it is a sense of, okay, failing at this, things are not going well, and what do I need to do better? And there's a huge, and that darkness, you know, one, it gives Deborah a, a chance to lift me up, you know, and be there for me, you know, and it's good to have a person like that in your life, like someone who, no matter what's going on, can see the positives when you don't. And I'm generally a pretty positive person, but I do have my moments, like you said. Mm-hmm. And and then the other point is, is what you said is then be willing to go there as an individual and not everything is not butterflies, rainbows and, and, and vanilla lattes. They are, it's tough. And sometimes you have to go through that part of just being down and hard on yourself to find solutions to things, to put out fires that are hard because it forces you to deal with them. You can't turn it over to someone else as an entrepreneur. You have to go through it. Yeah, absolutely. And you, it's not, I don't think as entrepreneurs, we're, we're seeking comfort or the beach life or all those different things. It's, there's a, there's a balance that I've very recently learned and still trying to practice in that I can be happy and enjoy and a little success that I have, but that doesn't mean complacency. And I I think that's what I had. I always told myself in my head is when I become satisfied, uh, you know, things stop getting better. And I don't think that's necessarily the truth in that I can be satisfied with the work I did. I can be satisfied with myself. I can be satisfied with growth, but I'm still not complacent and I'm still not done growing. And that's a tough thing I see entrepreneurs struggle with that we still want to see the journey through. Um, for me, I want to think I tell people this all the time and they think I'm crazy. I don't play the lottery and not because I think it's stupid and you're probably not going to win. It's because I don't want to win. If I win the lottery and you give me $30 million, I won't know if all this hard work was going to pay off or not. And that would drive me more crazy than being poor. And it's hard to explain that to a lot of people. And it's hard to, it's hard to explain that to my wife that I don't want a handout. I don't, I want to, I've worked too hard to not see this through. And that's the life that you signed up for. You know, that's what we're here to do and continue growing and help other people do. You know, I, there's, if there's no shortcut, there's no, you know, bank error in your favor. That's not a real life thing. There's these things don't just magically happen. You keep working, you keep grinding. Maybe one day you get there or, you know, you don't, but you look back and see, be satisfied in the work you did. I agree with that 100% actually. And I don't gamble either. Um, well, and it's one of the main reasons I don't, I want to, I really believe I have to grow for the rest of my life and I don't want to hand out and I don't want it to be easy, you know? And, and sometimes I'm like, gosh, some, you know, why can't it just be easier? You know? And I may say that, but it's not really what I mean because I know 
that I don't grow otherwise. And I need to grow until the day I die. Like that's to me, that's pretty apparent that we need to do as human beings and we need to help the individuals around us in any way we can grow as human beings until they pass away. But I think to your, your other point, which is, um, the, the whole, you know, getting complacent it's it is it's that's a bad thing as an entrepreneur that's not something you ever want to do and i actually hope people don't do that as human beings either just because like we need to keep growing and we need to pass that down to our children that they need to keep growing and look for things and do that as well and you know life is never easy and the other reason actually i don't gamble speaking of which is because not not for fear of winning because I feel like I already gamble every day in my life. So the, the feeling of gambling doesn't really please me or I don't really get any satisfaction out of it because mm-hmm. every day as an entrepreneur is a gamble. Like I, like yeah. some days you're literally, it may be educated, but there's still thousand things that could go wrong and do go wrong. And it's still a crapshoot every day. So my gambling, when they're like, oh, you don't like gambling? No, I do. I do it every day. It's just not in the same way that you guys do it. And and it's not $5 on a table. It's $150,000 and it's five people's jobs, you know? Yeah. So it's, you know, in their home and their food on their table and a roof over their head. And, you know, that's, you know, that's enough. I don't need to add any more gambling stress to my life. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, and you're, it's exactly it that you're every morning you're waking up gambling on something else. You're risking everything, your family's well-being, your own, your employees, your money, someone else's money that you get to a point where, yeah, I, a, a hand of blackjack doesn't, I don't care. And I don't care who wins this football game. I, you know, I've got, my excitement comes from my day to day. And, and that's what I hope people, I, it's to me, it's been more satisfying than those other things. And I think yeah. people can find satisfaction in that. And I don't think there's, I've never found satisfaction in complacency. It's just not there. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And, um, and, Eric, I just wanted to thank you for being on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to having you back on and sort of talk about Forerunner and what you guys are doing there as well. Um, but really, thank you for taking the time to, to be on the podcast. I actually really love this episode and how deep the conversation got, and I hope to explore that further when you come back on. Yeah, absolutely, Justin. I appreciate it. The pleasure has been mine and, and love what you're doing to, again, share these stories and honored to be here. So thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. And, and again, thank you because I love the time you spent on it. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Uh, Justin, the Food Entrepreneurs, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Justin, the Food com. If you're interested in being on the show or uh, want to make comments about the shows you've heard, you can reach me at Justin at the Food com is my email address. So again, thank you, everyone, for listening in and have a great day. Uh, Thanks again, Eric. All right. Thank you.